This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Acts chapter 9 is where we need to be this morning. This is just immediately after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. You remember how he was blinded and uh, he was led by the hand and brought to Damascus. Verse 10, it says, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and acquired the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who call on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. And Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt at Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Amen. I want to share a message this morning that, uh, as far as I know, it's been years since I last shared this message anywhere. And it's not because I don't have another message to share. It's because I felt constrained this week. This came to me again, uh, and I felt constrained to share it, particularly this morning. And I hope that you'd be encouraged by it. And it's called, Don't Let Go of the Rope. Whatever you do, do not let go of the rope. Saul of Tarsus had got saved on the road to Damascus, God told Ananias to go and pray for him, that he was a chosen vessel, that he would be a great preacher unto the Gentiles, unto the Jews, unto kings, and all in authority. And after he was prayed for, he received his sight, was baptized, and then spent some days, we don't know how long, but certainly some time he spent in Damascus preaching in the synagogues that this indeed is 
the Christ. And of course, that would stir up the Jews that was in the area. And we see here that they threatened to kill him. In verse 24 and 25, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. So these unnamed, unknown disciples really had no idea who was in their basket other than this persecutor of Christians. But what they didn't know, that this man was going to eventually pen two-thirds of the New Testament, that this man in their basket was the one who was going to become the greatest missionary evangelist that ever lived, that this man that they had in their basket was the one who would spend the next three years in Arabia in personal relationship with Christ, meeting Christ and getting a revelation from the Lord Jesus that would shape and form the church for the next 2,000 years until this very day. This was the man that was in their basket. This is the one whom they're holding the rope for. And even though their back may be breaking and their arms are aching, they must not let go of the rope. God had a special purpose for the one in the basket. And all they had to do was keep holding that rope until he touched the ground, until he was safe, until he would go away and meet with the Lord Jesus. God gives each and every one of us as believers, he gives us a rope to hold. Somebody is in your basket. Someone or something is in your basket today. And whatever you do, even though your back may be breaking and your arms may be aching, you must not let go of the rope. You have to hold onto that basket. Who's in your basket today? Maybe it's family. There are people here right now this morning and you've been holding the rope for that precious little child, Grace. And it's been a month now. And it's been tough. It's been difficult. And even though your back may be breaking and your arms may be aching holding that rope, you must not let go of the rope. Because there's something precious that's in your basket. Think of the Scott family here this morning. And they've got someone in their basket. They've been holding the rope now for over a year for Sasha. Sasha's 16. We've been praying much for her. We know what she's been going through. We know what the family's been going through. And they're holding the rope for her. Hallelujah. And they mustn't let go. Amen. It's tough. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it seems to be your prayers are not being answered. And there may be a temptation sometimes to say, what's the point? And let go of the rope. But you can't, and you don't, and you won't, and you aren't. You're still holding the rope. Thank God you are. 
some of you are holding the rope for prodigal sons and daughters. You've talked to them. You've preached at them. You've done everything. But today they're still prodigals. They're out in the far country. Like the father and the prodigal, you're still holding the rope. You're out looking, waiting for them, watching for them, longing for them to come home to the father's house. And you've still got that rope in your hand. And it's been tough. But even though your back is breaking and your arms are aching, you must not let go of the rope. You may be the only one holding the rope for them. Nobody's going to care like you care. Joseph held the rope for his family, didn't he? For all of those years and all that he went through. But he never let go of the rope. And one day all of those brothers and his mother and his father that were in his basket for all of those 22 years. Hmm. Boy, they were glad that he held the rope for them. Noah was the one who held the rope for his family, wasn't it? His three sons, their three wives. Thank God he did or you wouldn't be sitting here this morning. Because all of us came from Noah and his family. Because everybody else was wiped out. God began all over again with one family. And those... That family, that's where we descended from. Abraham, he held the rope for, for Lot, his nephew, more than once. Remember after they parted? Remember they had that dispute and they parted? And Lot decided that he would take the well water plains where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the other cities of that region were there. And then at one point there was four kings came to attack that region. And even though that region had five kings, the four kings won. And Lot and his family were swept up in the maelstrom of that <coughs> war and were taken captives. Their goods were plundered. But Abraham, even though they were separated for a long time, but Abraham was still holding his rope. That was still in his basket. And as soon as Abraham heard, he had 318 trained men, and he took off to get him. And he got him. Defeated those armies and brought back Lot and his family, and many, many, many families. He was in his basket. Lot was in his basket whenever God decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember how Abraham pleaded, bargained with God. And eventually, Lot and his wife, two of his daughters, were saved. Escaped. Yes, we know that Lot's wife turned back, was turned to a pillar of salt. But Lot and his daughters, his two of his daughters, they get saved, rescued. Thank God for Abraham. 
So maybe you're the only one that's holding the rope for a family member today. Maybe everybody has given up on them. Maybe they have given up themselves. But you're still holding the rope. Jairus held the rope for his little daughter, didn't he? Ruler of the synagogue. Must have been difficult for him. Because he knew that once he would go to Jesus that he was going to be in trouble with other <laughs> rulers in the synagogues. But he didn't care. His little daughter was in his basket and she was dying. She was at the point of death. And he went and he sought out Jesus. And he says, come lay your hands upon my daughter. And I know that you will heal her if you just lay your hands on her. And Jesus said, okay. And that's where the little woman with the issue of blood interrupted. By the time he got there, they came out and said, don't trouble the master any further. Your daughter is dead. And at that point, Jesus saw that look in his face of fear and despair. And maybe the temptation at that point to say, it wasn't worth it. It didn't work. I was too late. But Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. And you know that Jesus went in and spoke to that child and she rose again from the dead. Jairus was glad that he held the rope and that little one in his basket lived to tell the tale. Andrew was the one who held the rope for his brother, Simon Peter. It was Andrew who met Jesus first. It was Andrew then who went and told his brother, Peter. Your salvation is a very, very important factor in the future of your family and your greater family circle. I know after over all these years, because you, many of you have said it to me time and time again, it's so hard to speak to my unsaved loved ones. Let me tell you something. Nobody better to speak to them than you. Do not leave it until it's too late to speak to them. Speak to them as quickly as you can. What's the worst can happen? What's the worst can happen? That they refuse you? But what if they receive you? What if they do get saved? What if you're the one that leads them to Christ? What a joy that would be for you. You're the witness, you're the testimony in your family circle. They're in your basket. You hold the rope for them. Well, let's pray them through to Christ. Maybe it's for a family, maybe it's for a friend. Philip was the one who held the rope for Nathaniel. Philip found Christ. What did he do? He looked at his friend Nathaniel. Sitting under the fig tree, meditating. He says, Nathaniel, come. Let me introduce you to the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
and he was out of Nazareth. That shows you how bad Nazareth was. He lived there. Is anything good come out of this place? So maybe it's for a friend, someone you know, someone you went to school with, someone you've worked with or are working with, somebody in uni. Jonathan held the rope for David, didn't he? Again and again. And Saul, Jonathan's father, wanted to kill David. He was insanely jealous. Insanely jealous. From that moment when he killed Goliath and the woman shot it, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. He eyed him from that day forward, the Bible says. That jealous streak rose up in his heart. And several times he tried to kill him, threw a javelin at him. And if it hadn't been for Jonathan, Jonathan and David had that great friendship. And Jonathan saved his life on more than one occasion. And then many, many years later, you remember that David now is on his throne, he's settled, his nation is in good shape, and one day he's thinking, and he's wondering. He's thinking about Saul and his good friend Jonathan, both whom years ago had died in battle. And he brings his servant, an old retainer of Saul's, and he said to Ziba, he says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, I show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He remembered that covenant that Jonathan and David had made together. <coughs> and how Jonathan said, If anything happens to me, please look after my family. And he said, I will. And Ziba says, yes, it so happens that Jonathan has yet a son. Mephibosheth lives in Lodibar, the place of no pastures, but he's lame in both of his feet. And you know that beautiful story. We've preached on it a number of times. And David realized that he was in his basket. And he was the one to hold the rope for him. And he did. And he sent for him and brought him to Jerusalem. And said, from now on, you're going to eat at the king's table. Even though your feet are lame. And even though you feel like a dead dog, as you said. But yet you will eat at my table continually. See, David was holding the rope for him. He was in his basket. I wonder, is there a friend that you know today that you're holding the rope for? Thank God for Barnabas. Whenever Saul of Tarsus, whenever he gets saved, and he went into those three years to Arabia to meet with the Lord, and he conferred not with flesh and blood. And during that time, he had not gone to headquarters in Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. But after about three years, he decided, well, it's time I should go to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles. But what he found was that... They were all very suspicious. This is the one who had put many in prison. This is the one who stood watching the first martyr die in the death for Christ. This is the one who was putting people in prison even as far as Damascus. Why would they trust him? 
Hadn't heard about him for a while. And there was rumors flying around, but they had kind of died down. He was off the scene, and now he's back again. Maybe he's trying to infiltrate and, and get information so that we can be arrested. And they really did not want to touch Saul of Tarsus. But Barnabas, son of consolation, he comes. And if I can paraphrase for you, he says he's the real deal. He's genuine. He's truly born again of God's Spirit. And he's a wonderful advocate for Christ. He preaches the Lord Jesus. And whenever they heard, because they trusted Barnabas, had high regard for Barnabas. And if Barnabas said that, then they would trust his word. And then Paul began to walk among them. Later on, Paul and Barnabas became great co-workers in evangelism. And in Acts 13, they had a great prayer meeting. And God spoke prophetically and said, Separate me unto me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have going to send them to. And John Mark, young John Mark, he had been with them for a little while now. They brought him along. And so they went into the field evangelizing. And after a while, you'd see in Acts 15, after a while that John Mark, he decided it wasn't for him. And so in the midst of evangelizing in the foreign field, he left them and came back to Jerusalem. And Paul wasn't happy about it. Don't think Barnabas was happy about it either, but Paul was less happy about it, could we say, diplomatically. But sometime later, they were going off again. And Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us. Let's give him another chance. And Paul says, no. I'd love to hear that conversation. I'd imagine it would go something like this. No, can't trust him. No good to me. Failed us. Let us down. Hurt the work. No, can't take him. And the contention became too great between them that they separated. And Barnabas took John Mark. And Paul took Silas. That might have been the end of the story, but it wasn't. Because in 2 Timothy 4, Paul now is an old man. He's about to die. He's about to become a martyr for the faith. And he knows it. He's imprisoned. And he says, uh, send to me. And he mentions some folks. And he says, send Mark, for he is profitable for me for the ministry. Good job Barnabas held the rope for John Mark. Good job he kept him in his basket because Paul certainly wasn't going to hold the rope for him. Great as Paul is, Paul was quite hard-nosed. My way or the highway, that was Paul's attitude. But Barnabas, the son of consolation, says, no, I'll hold the rope for him. Good job he did because you wouldn't be reading the Gospel of Mark today if he didn't. So wonder, is there a friend that you're holding the rope for? 
Remember those four who brought the crippled man to Jesus and they tore up the roof and they let him down. Presumably by ropes, they let him down. And Jesus healed him. Maybe it's for a nation. Well, let me qualify that. Very few people, very few individuals is ever called to hold the rope for a whole nation. But some has. Esther was one of them, wasn't she? Remember the story of Esther, how that she was queen, one of the queens of Ahasuerus, the Persian king. She must have been beautiful. Gorgeous Jewess. Mordecai and her were cousins, but he was a much older man. It was more like his daughter. They're all in captivity. But oftentimes when Jews went into captivity, you see in the book of Daniel, oftentimes that God would raise them up into a position of influence and authority. Mordecai was in that position. He sat at the king's gate. And he told Ruth, do not say that you're a Jew. Anti-Semitism was rife in those days also. Don't say you're a Jew. And then how that Ahasuerus promoted Haman above everyone, above all of his princes and all of the provinces of the whole empire. He became his number two. And whenever he got that position and he would go into the city, people would bow before him in obeisance, except Mordecai. He wouldn't do it. He just wouldn't do it. And Haman despised him for it. He hated him. And then Mordecai let it be known that he was a Jew, and he hated him all the more and wanted to kill him. But not only that, he's in a position, he's number two in the whole empire. Not only that, he's in a position to wipe out all of the Jews in all of the provinces. And that was what his plan became. So he went to the king, and he says, king, he says, there's people, he didn't say there were Jews, he says, there's people in the provinces all over your empire, and they have different laws than us. And they'll not respect you. And when the king heard that, he was angry. But he says, if you will allow me, in fact, I will give you 10,000 talents of silver, and I will raise up men all over the empire. And on a certain day, and they cast lots for the certain day, on a certain day, when I give the order, every Jew, every man, woman, boy, or girl, we will annihilate. The king says, okay. <laughs> okay. This king was a bit rash. He acted rashly and impulsively. And so they drew lots. And they found out the lot fell on a day which was one year ahead. But they were superstitious people. So they drew lots and it was one year ahead. So they says, okay. So that gave Mordecai 
and the Jews a little bit of time to work on this, what they could do. Well, they could escape, I suppose, if they wanted, but where would they escape to? I mean, the then-known world was all ruled by the Persians, so wherever they would go, they'd be found. So Mordecai, you remember, he, he, he says to Esther, he says, now Esther, this is what the score is. This Haman is going to wipe us all out. Esther at this point hadn't known that. And uh, he was, Mordecai had ripped off his clothes and he was in sackcloth and ashes and he was in mourning. And she heard about that and she sent him new clothes to wear. He sent them back and says, no, you don't understand. This is what's going to happen. And in effect, she says, well, what can I do about that? Uh, nothing really. And he says, if you don't do something, well, God will raise up somebody else. But who knows that you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai felt that's why you're in this position. That's why you're the queen today. Because God's going to use you to save us as a nation. And she says, okay. It's very dangerous. I can't just walk in there. I haven't been there for a month. If I just walk into the king, anybody just walks in unannounced or uninvited, it's death. Except he holds out that golden scepter. But if I perish, I perish. Let's fast for three days. You tell everybody in the city to fast, I'll tell my maids and I will fast for three days. And that's what they did. And then she went to the king, took her life in her hands. She dressed up in her regal gowns, looked her best, and went to the courtyard where the king could see her. And he looked at her, and he held out his scepter. And he says, Esther, what is your petition? What do you want? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. That was an exaggeration, by the way, that not only would ever do that, but it was just an exaggeration. But whatever you want. She says, well, I want to have a party. Just you and me and Haman. And so, the next day they had a party. The king, the queen, and Haman. And Haman was so pleased his head was swollen. His ego was bursting. Imagine only him and the king and the queen, just the three of them in this intimate little party they're having. And then the king says, Esther, what do you want? What is your petition? And she says, King, I'll tell you tomorrow night. We'll have another party tomorrow night, just you and me and Haman, and then I'll tell you my petition. He says, okay. <laughs> and so now, remember now she's been fasting. They've all been fasting. And so, between the next night, that night, and the next night, Haman went home to his wife. And he said, listen, you know what's happened? The king and the queen has invited me, only me, in the whole kingdom, only me. They invited me to come to their do tomorrow night. Imagine that. And his ego was again bursting. But he says, I would give all of that, all of my riches, all of my wealth, all of my riches, I would give all of that away if only if I could 
do that Mordecai. I hate that man. I hate him with a passion. And his wife says, don't worry. Build a gallows and hang him in the morning. Remember, you're number two. You can do this. Don't sweat it. Hang him in the morning. Go ahead and enjoy your party. A good idea, he said. And he built a gallows, 75 feet high. He wanted the whole city to see Mordecai swinging on the gallows. <laughs> but that night, that night Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. And he calls one of his eunuchs, and he says, he could have said, I don't think he could have said, kept me a minstrel, you know, make me tea. He could have done anything. You know what he says? He says, get me one of those chronicles of the kingdom. That must be one of the most boring things that you'd ever read. One of the chronicles of the kingdom. Get that and read it to me because I can't sleep. This is the providence of God, isn't it? And so he goes in and there must have been dozens of these chronicles of his kingdom. And he picks one out at random. But it wasn't at random because in the providence of God, it was the right one. And he began to read it. And what he read was that five years prior to this, that Mordecai had heard that there was a conspiracy, a conspiracy against him that two of the eunuchs had conspired to kill him. And whenever Mordecai heard that, he told Esther, and Esther told the king, and those two rascals were hung. And it was recorded in the king's chronicles. And so, when the eunuch read that, he says, hold on a minute, he says, did, did he get a reward for this? Uh, did anybody give him anything for saving my life? The eunuch says, no, no, there's no reward. It's not written here, there's no reward. <laughs> ah, he needs to get rewarded. He says, I, I need one of my officials to, to come. We need to talk about this. He says, are there any of my officials here this morning? This was early in the morning. And it just so happened that Haman, having built his gallows for Mordecai, Haman walks in. It's very early in the morning. He's the only one there. And he says, well, well, Haman's just come in. He says, bring him in. <laughs> and if you didn't read this in the Bible, you wouldn't believe it. You think God hasn't got a sense of humor. That's wonderful. Whenever you read it, that's <laughs> what happens. Let me just read this little bit to you. That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles. They were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told Bigthana and Tiresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been stowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servant who attended him says, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. Now this bit is funny. You, ha you read this, it's honestly, listen to this. So Haman came in. And the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king's delight to honor? <laughs> now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? <laughs> his ego was so big, he couldn't think of anybody else that came to want to honor more than himself. And Haman answered the king, for the man 
whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which had a royal crest placed on his head, and let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man and the king delights, whom the king delights to honor. And then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor, thinking it's going to be him. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate, leaving nothing undone of all that you have spoken. <laughs> I mean, it's not just wonderful. It just shows you God has a real sense of humor. He went right into the trap. So Haman took the robe and the horse arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterwards Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Then Haman told his wife Zerash and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His wise men and his wife Zerash said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking to him, the king's eunuch came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So now he's going to the banquet, the second one. And his head's busting. He knows he's in serious trouble. He's humiliated. He's embarrassed. But at least, at least, there's only going to be him and the queen and the king. And so if you read on, he goes to the party. And the king says to Esther, what is your petition? And she says... There's a man that wants to kill me. And not only that, he wants to kill all of those like me in your kingdom. And the king says, who is this man? <laughs> he hadn't figured out yet that it was human. Who is this man? And she says, him. Haman and the king was livid and he jumped up and he went out into his garden and he paced up and down thinking what am I going to do this rascal he's got into my confidence I've made him number two in the kingdom and all the while he's plotting to kill my wife and all of her friends and all of her people in all of my provinces and whenever Haman saw him pacing up and down he begs Esther for his very life and it gets so heated that he, he threw him she's sitting in the couch he threw himself upon her <laughs> begging for his life and the king walks in when that was happening and he says you're actually molesting my wife and my own house and there was no going back from this and one of the king's eunuchs said listen he planned to hang Mordecai the Jew. He built a gallows 50 cubits high. The king says, hang him on it. <laughs> hang him on it. Hang him on his own gallows. And they went out and they hanged him 
on his old gals. Now listen, one person, one woman saved a whole nation. He intended to eradicate every Jew. The reckon, historians reckon there was 15 million Jews in the Persian kingdom at that time, and he intended to eradicate every single one of them. Anti-Semitism was rife then. It's 70 years ago, one man decided to eradicate every Jew in the world, Hitler. But he didn't succeed, thank God. Moses was the one who stood against Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Let them go. Just one man. Frightened as he was, nervous as he was, bad speaker as he was, he said. And God says, no, you go and tell him. Let my people go. You remember whenever they had left? Remember at one point, Remember at one point Moses was up Sinai talking to the Lord. And he was there for a long time. And Aaron, his brother, the high priest, and the people decided, let's make a golden calf. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And they danced before the golden calf. Could you believe that? When God heard the rumpus, he said to Moses, get down there. He says, they're a stiff-necked, rebellious people. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm sick of them. I'm tired of them. Had enough. Done everything for them. Look how they repay me. They're dancing around a golden calf saying, this is their God that brought them out of Egypt. And Moses, in spite of all of their weaknesses, he still loved them. And he says, God, please. He says, wipe, <laughs> wipe me out but don't wipe them out. He says, the Egyptians will talk about us if you do that. I'm paraphrasing all this. They'll say you're not a good God after all. And one man stood in the gap for the whole nation. God says, I'll make of you a great nation. I'll wipe all them. I'll start with you and make you a great nation. He says, no. No, he says, no, that wouldn't be right. And God relented. And he saved the nation. You know, I think that God will preserve a nation for the righteous that are in it. There's many a nation that wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the righteous that were in it. Hmm? If God had got ten righteous people in Sodom, he wouldn't have wiped it out. But he couldn't get ten. I wonder where our country would be today if it wasn't for the prayers of God's people. You know, there was programs there last week on television that brought back memories. Some of you are too young for these memories. And, and Belfast, I remember, I remember Bloody Friday. You young ones have no idea what I'm talking about. When there's so many bombs in Belfast and people were getting blown up left, right, and center, all over the city. I, I worked with a fireman at the time, and he told me, he says, I had to take time to work after that. He says, he says, I was emotionally and physically ill. He says, I was picking up body parts of roofs and black bags for a whole day. He says, I, he says, I couldn't sleep for a week. He says, I couldn't shut my eyes. I couldn't sleep. 
And we lived through, many of us lived through all that stuff. And it looked as if our nation was finished. It looked as if it was going to implode, that we were going to wipe each other out. But we didn't. And think in that time, the prayer meetings. I mean, Belfast was a ghost city. There was a ring of steel around it. You, you, if you went to visit Belfast, you had to go through steel barriers and be checked. You had to look underneath every car. You, you wouldn't have went past a car sitting on a, a, at a footpath on its own. You, you would not have went past them because it was a bomb. We, we lived under that stuff. But people prayed. People went before the Lord. People prayed. And God spared us. And God brought us through. Now, yes, there's some bad eggs run about yet and would try to drag us back into that. But by and large, we're through that. And it was the prayers of God's people. It was the prayers of God's people. Jesus held the rope for the whole world, didn't he? For the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Every soul in the world, it was Jesus held the rope. They're in his basket. Hmm. Revelation 3 and 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast that which you have that no one steal your crown. There's things that you just have to hold fast. You just cannot let go of. Somebody is counting on you. They really are. Let me finish. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, or maybe it's a dream or a vision. It's been God-given, but it's a long time coming. It's a long time coming. You believe it with all of your heart, but you haven't seen the fulfillment. If it's God-given, and even though it's a long time coming, if it's in your basket, do not let go of the rope. Keep holding on. Though it tarry, wait for it. It will surely come, and it will not tarry. It will come. Maybe it's a calling or a ministry. Romans 12, 4 and 7, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So maybe there's ministry. Maybe there's a calling. Some of you are just starting out in your Christian life. You're wondering, what's God going to do with me? How's he going to use me? What purpose has he got for my life? Keep holding on. Don't let go. God will show you. Quickly, how do we hold on? Hold on with a rope of prayer. James 1, 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's not the thing that we're most likely to let go of first, isn't it? Prayer. Because we haven't seen it yet. 
because there doesn't seem to be any evidence of it yet. Because we've been praying for all this time and nothing seemingly is happening. That's when the tendency is to quit praying. But keep praying. That's the rope that you're holding. Don't let go. Your loved ones, your friends, your family, your kids, whatever. Keep praying. Sally prayed for her sister for 30 years. Backslider for 30 years. But after 30 years, she came back again. She came back again. Never prayed for her husband, a backslider. He needs to come back too. Faith. Faith holds the rope. Not faith in what you see, faith in what you cannot see. But your faith is based in God's promises. It's based in God's word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not blind faith. It's trusting in the goodness of God and the reliability of God. You're trusting in the faithfulness of God. You're trusting in God's word, his promises. And of course, you've got to keep on asking and seeking and knocking until it is opened up unto you. And then finally, it's the prayer of love, isn't it? Sorry, it's the rope of love. That's why you keep holding on to your family and to your friends, to your loved ones. Because you love them. You want the best for them. You don't want them to be lost. You don't want them to miss God's best. Because you love them. Somebody, somewhere, held the rope for you and for me. Thank you, Lord. Might have been a mother or father, might have been a granny or a granda, might have been an uncle or a cousin, might have been a work colleague or a friend, but somebody held the rope for you. Somebody prayed for you and you didn't even know. Somebody was on their knees at their bedside every night bringing you before the throne of grace and you didn't even know they were holding that rope for you. And what a joy it is when you see them coming through for Christ. You know who will get the reward? Not be the preacher that preached that sermon. It'll be you. It'll be you. You were the one who prayed. You were the one who asked the Holy Spirit to go after them. And it was the Holy Spirit that caused that one to cross their path. But you were the one who prayed. You'll get a great reward. Let's give thanks unto the Lord. Lord, we bless you. We thank you, Lord, that in each of our baskets there is someone or something that is precious to us. And we are not going to let go. We're going to see that come to fulfillment in the name of Jesus. And so we commit our family, our friends, our loved ones, our callings, our ministries, whatever, we commit them to you. We say, Lord, bring it to pass in your time and in your way. Bring it to fulfillment. And so we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. 
just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk